Australians have collectively reached for the remote and turned down the volume on Canberra's noise. Mr Harborside Mansion, this man is a parasite. This is it, this is as thick as it gets. He's stark raving mad. Let there be a thousand blossoms, blooms, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I think sometimes we can disagree with the facts. I've always seemed to get, for whatever reason, a disproportionate amount of press. You are fake news. I realised how nasty, how mean, how vicious and how fake the press can be. I think quite a few bottles of wine were consumed. The vultures are circling. I have never had more fun in my life. This is Represent. 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 On Sin Nation. Good afternoon. You're listening to Represent on Sin Nation. I'm Oscar. And I'm Maggie. On today's show, we'll be covering the the Mexican elections and the the significance thereof. We're looking at Sexism in the Australian Parliament and exploring the recent comments of David Line, David Linehelm regarding Sarah Hansen Young. Be looking at freedom of the press and the ABC being barred from the from the Nauru from Nauru for, for, uh, Nauru Pacific Islands form coverage. I'll be looking at the charging of Witness K and his lawyer. We're going to be talking first about the recent elections in Mexico, a huge story across the world because um, of Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador's election and his commonly known as AMLO. And it was a pretty big deal because he is the first sort of left, pretty openly left-leaning um president elected in quite a long while and he was elected by quite a quite a landslide he is a little bit about him he's 64 years old he is the former mayor of mexico city and he won about 53 percent of the vote um to put that into perspective the run-up is only got about 20 something percentage of the vote so that's a huge win um yeah, he um, has also run for the position many times in the past, including in 2006 and 2012, but um, in neither case he won, um, some people say, and it is possible that, um, you know, it could have been some problems with the democratic process in Mexico that led to those results, not necessarily in the, I suppose, conviction of the case. Um Anyway, I'm going to bounce this off to Oscar. Lots of people are saying that this is going to have some consequences in the ways that Mexico interacts with Trump and America in general. Do you have any speculations on this at all? I mean, it's going to be interesting because America has, uh, well, for the most part of the Obama administration, uh, has had a relationship with Mexico in trying to stop uh refugees from South America from coming into the United States. Mm. I've done this by, you know, on the federal level by setting up uh, various checkpoints uh, along key roads to, and, you know, doing checks along there to try and stop them from moving north. Uh, And it's going to be interesting to see whether this is going to be the same approach that this president takes. So that's, you know, one of the key areas. Yeah, I think... I read some reports, but I'm not willing to say I'm 100% on it. But I believe AMLO is looking to scrap that case, if possible. I think he's sort of reflecting the larger Mexican sort of attitude of where um, since they've sort of worked with America in that and stopping more um, South American sort of um, 
countries and like refugees from those countries being able to come through. There hasn't really been any sort of gratefulness on the side of the US. They're so also still sort of going with the rhetoric of like we want to build a wall, like we want to stop immigrants and not really I suppose like reflecting back that sort of like uh, like an um mood of like camaraderie or anything like that. And I believe the sort of line that AMLO is going to be taking is more so in accepting those refugees into Mexico and sort of um you know, helping them instead of turning them back as criminals. But, of course, that's not sort of the only, uh, I suppose, line that he's sort of promised as part of his campaign trail. He is also really concerned on dealing with corruption within his own state. And certainly that's um, to do with, like, the drugs and, like, cartels in Mexico. And as well as he wants to sort of raise um, more people who are dealing with poverty. And that's sort of a main reason why he got so many of those votes. And what's also really exciting is that it's not just him that has had such a big win. His party, the party that he's part of, also took quite a few seats in the um, sort of parliament. So in the Chamber of Deputies, um, Morena, which is the party, and its allies took about 73% of the seats and about 56% of the seats in the Senate, which is a pretty good amount of seats if you want to make, like, significant changes, I would say. Um, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the the, predece- uh, the, pre- the predecessors kind of left a lot of problems that, you exactly. know, had a lot of um, c- uh, Mexican citizens feeling, like, discontent with uh, the government because, you know, there was... There was sort of the the previous government in two thousand eight, uh, backed with U.S. funding, tried to uh, s- try to sort of fight a war on drugs of sorts, and this really didn't go too well. It also involved the military in this process, which has led to, you know, which has you know, been harshly condemned round because of human rights abuses arising out of this. Yeah. Mm, exactly. Like we've got some stats in front of us as well. Um, within the last presidency, um, between January two thousand fifteen and March two thousand eighteen, homicide rates within Mexico actually nearly doubled, and then the Mexican peso has also sharply devalued in terms of its um, international standing, and that's sort of just yeah the tip of the iceberg. Um, there's also been sort of speculation about if there's any corruption with the last president himself and if he's taken any unethical behavior and that coupled with um his sort of weak sort of standing and dealing with Donald Trump was a huge part of his downfall and that is something I wanted to circle back on with you Oscar is the idea of um all of the four presidential candidates within Mexico, so not just AMLO, was actually taking a sort of stance against Donald Trump and the rhetoric that he spun about Mexico. Not so much in being um, openly anti-Trump, but more so in saying that they will take a more strong sort of attitude when they're dealing with him. Do you think that um, AMLO's win and just sort of this whole attitude within the country has a lot to do with Trump and his presidency? I mean, I think it does, because for a lot of um, citizens in Mexico, it kind of feels like, you know, Mexico is pushing 
to, you know, do all of these things that America is imposing on them, like free trade agreements, you know, with NAFTA and things like that, and um, and uh, the uh, border enforcement and uh, and drug crackdowns. And it feels like, and I think for many people, it feels like America isn't really doing a lot in return, and is instead just, you know, threatening all of these bunch of you know, behave, threaten, threatening to do all these things uh, and isn't really appreciating the value of mm. uh, Mexico in uh, trying to do ver- various American initiatives. Exactly. It's going to be interesting keeping an eye on um, the relationship going forward. So Donald Trump has tweeted his congratulations and AMLO um, has graciously accepted, but of course like beyond the formalities, when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, like the things you're talking about, like the border control, the like free trade sort of deals, how exactly they're going to approach that is going to be really interesting to follow. Um, something else that people have found really significant about this election is sort of what it means for democracy in Mexico in general, because it has been sort of stated that this was actually possibly the most bloodiest of Mexico's elections within living memory. So um, it has been sort of tallied that approximately 136 candidates and party workers had been killed within the process, and there has been attacks on some 300 people more than that. So um, that resulted in lots of candidates pulling out of the races because they were genuinely afraid for the for their own lives and possibly the lives of their families. Um, and then, so most of these attacks, I assume, is going to be tied somewhat to organised crime. But, um, of course, that didn't really stop a lot of people going out into the polls to vote. So that, I suppose, is something that instills a bit of hope and hopefully with more sort of um, changes being put in place, it can become a safer sort of place for democracy to sort of um, take place and um, give way for better and safer elections in the future. Of course, there's lots of other aspects of this to unpack. Uh, What are your thoughts, Oscar? Do you think this is sort of a win for democracy in Mexico that so many people turned out despite the violence throughout this whole thing? I mean, it definitely shows, you know, the courage of people to, you know, I guess kind of rise up. But it has certainly been a turbulent time. And it has, I mean, it could be said that, you know, such things have kind of been normalised during Mm. uh, this time. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, So I suppose that is all we have to say on this issue. We're super excited to hear what you think. Tell us any speculations you have. How do you feel about Emma's election? How do you feel like this is going to affect Mexican and US relations? Send us a tweet to at SinRepresent to let us know or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. So we uh, now turn to the controversy that was stirred up after David Leinhelm's comments about Sarah Hansen Young. So uh, the this whole thing uh, starts with a debate uh, on I'm pretty sure it was the use of uh, tasers and pepper spray mm. and uh, also in relation to a domestic violence context 
and David Leinhelm told Sarah Hansen Young to, quote, stop shagging men. Yes, and we have got a clip of Sarah Hansen Young's sort of response to the whole thing in a following sort of parliamentarian debate where she um, explained the entire issue and how it progressed to the parliament. Take a listen. Earlier today, during the motion relating to violence against women, Senator Lane held yelled an offensive and sexist slur at me across the chamber. After the vote on the motion was complete, I walked over to the senator and confronted him directly. I asked whether I had heard him correctly. He confirmed that he had yelled, you should stop shagging men, Sarah. Shocked, I told him that he was a creep. His reply was to tell me to f dot 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 off. I informed the leader of the Greens and he has raised it with both Senator Leinhelm and the President. I am disappointed that the Senator has refused to apologise for this offensive and sexist slur and I call on him to formally withdraw and apologise directly. Right, so this happened um, closer to the start of the week and we've sort of seen it progress a little bit, including um, sort of David Leinhelm going on Sky News. Oscar, can you brief us a so, little yeah, bit about Sky that? New, uh, Sarah, uh, David Leinhelm appeared on Sky News uh, following the incident and basically repeated the comments uh, that were said. Uh, I think he also said some like even worse things, yeah, right, that we're not going to repeat here, yeah. but terrible. Uh, and so Sky News has apologised, and in a quite bizarre move, in my opinion, and... Mm. Uh, fired the uh, per- the young woman who was writing yeah. what was being said on the bottom of the screen. Just to confirm, was it fired or suspended? Oh, it was I suspended. think it might be suspension. Yeah, yeah it was suspended. Yes, yeah, still, that is a pretty um, harsh thing to do in just my personal opinion. I feel like, Oscar, you probably agree with me on this. Um, in terms of when we were reading up on it, it seems like it took a lot of external pressure for Sky News to apologise in the first place. And um, in the end, like in terms of the whole Sky News team, who really, I suppose, went like got the most hurt through the issue? It's not the host. It's not you know anyone. It was like a casual producer who was like a young woman and. As both of us are in sort of the like have experience dealing with radio, you can understand sort of the pressure that she was under. So the the issue that she got into trouble with is basically repeating David Leinhelm's um, statements in the strap, which is like a little black bar at the bottom of the screen that um, sort of like write, is in text about what's going on. Um, so that was sort of the thing that she did wrong, so to speak. But personally, I just feel like. It's like the punishment doesn't fit the crime. She wasn't the one that said those issues. And to this day, I believe David Leinhelm still hasn't apologized and he's set some conditions for apology. Yes, so he has. So um, Sky News and Sky News apologized after uh, Sarah, Senator Hanson Young uh, threatened legal action. Uh, and the, the threat was also sent to David Leinhelm, but... He has remained defiant. <laughs> uh, so he said that he will uh, apologise on if, quote, she, she has to c- concede that, all, that men are not collectively responsible for the violent behaviour of individuals such as the odious man who attacked and raped Iridice Iri- Di- Dixon, Dixon yeah. Melbourne. Uh, the second edition was, quote, we are all individuals, we are not collectively blamed and we are treated as individuals. And the third one was, 
quote, that women have the legitimate right to carry things to protect themselves, such as tasers and pepper spray. Yeah, like, um, personally, just hearing that, it's just it just seems like more wheezing around and trying to get more attention for himself. And to put it more in context, the initial... Um, the way that David Lionham justifies his own comment um, towards Hanson Young was he assumed that she insinuated that all men are rapists, which is not what she was saying at all, particularly within yeah. that context of yeah. the um, woman who was um, raped and killed within um, Princess yeah. Park in Melbourne. And it was a conversation about making tasers, I believe, more readily accessible or something yeah. along those lines. And it's just been taken completely out of context. Um, but yeah, it's, what? Like, I'm perplexed, Oscar. Like, for me, you would think maybe you can put some insight into this. It's like, if you've already made such a big screw up, and there's so many people um, all over social media asking you to take the comment back. And we've seen. Um, you know, parliamentarians do this where we've where we've gotten angry where they've said something and suddenly they choose to take it back and we're not allowed to get angry at him. But now he's not even willing to take this comment back. Like, what do you think his motivations behind that might be? Like, why is he being so obstinate about this? I mean, uh, uh, Lineholm kind of wants to maintain this rep uh, this reputation as kind of this uh, outlandish and outrageous uh, libertarian who. You know, and this is not the first time he has said stuff. Now, while we can't some of say some of the things he's said, uh, one of the things that believe me, you're not missing out. But <laughs> uh, so, uh, Hill once said that John Howard quote deserved to be shot for introducing restrictive gun laws, and he he also once said that he would he'd be quote happy to let police who want to enforce and anti-bikey legislation lie on the side of the road and bleed to death. Oh, that's just Which is terrible. quite, you know, v- violent and outlandish. So this is this is not uncommon behaviour for David Lionhelm. And I think he wants to try to maintain this reputation and also he sees himself in this eyes of I'm just a typical Australian saying typical things. It's just... I don't. I can't believe I'm in a position where I'm saying something positive about Donald Trump. But <laughs> pre-preface, I'm going to say something moderately positive about Donald Trump. Is like the thing is when Donald Trump is someone. He is also known for saying hugely outlandish things and things that are, um, you know, not su- supported by fact. And like his team has to say the exact opposite of what he sort of insinuates over his Twitter. But I suppose one of the better things of Donald Trump is that he will always take it back if there's enough backlash and if, like, you know, I suppose there are some issues that he is more opposite on, but in general, I feel like he is more willing to use language as a sort of weapon to almost shroud himself in, like, where you don't always know if he is about to stand by what he says and that's something that He's used to his advantage, but with the case of Lionhelm, like I just fail to see what actual benefits this will bring him. Aside from, you know, it's not. It's sure he gets some momentary attention, but that's. I f- don't feel like that's going to transition into more people, you know, voting him back into parliament or anything like that, right? Like, yeah. Um, something kind of ironic here is that. Um, 
uh, Linehelm uh, is doesn't always isn't like doesn't take you know this doesn't take this you know kind of outlandish behavior when he is the aggrieved party in a dispute. Uh, okay. uh, just recently, he threatened to. Uh, he he told a journalist who tweeted a factual error about him that he was quote prepared to sue for defamation. <laughs> wow! So you know, since there's two sides to this coin, that is that is I I don't know what to say. I mean, <laughs> that's crazy. Like I I suppose something that is positive about the story is how many people have rallied against him. Like certainly, um, both Shorten and Turnbull. So across the whole parliament roughly, they have called for David Linehelm to apologise. Um, <laughs> but his response was condemning them and for, like, accepting discrimination against men. Well, yeah, he accused them of you know, being misandrists. <laughs> I think that's the term. I yeah. how you actually pronounce it correctly. I think you got it. He also called Turnbull a doormat. <laughs> wow. And it's just, the way he's dealing with it is just so inappropriate and snarky. Yeah. And a good point that a lot of the audience to this sort of whole debate or not even a debate this whole sort of um issue unfolding is the idea of whether this would be appropriate in for example a corporate setting if you imagine a co-worker uh three cubicles down from you just shouting that at you in lunch break or something like that there's a strong chance that he'll be highly reprimanded or he'll be fired versus somehow there seems to be this different standard that we hold like public figures and particularly politicians to yeah. like there's so many vile things that can be thrown around in question time yeah um yeah because line yeah linehelm is basically made himself to be out as a provocateur that and so and a lot mm. of the things he said certainly wouldn't be tolerated in the workplace as it's you know but is that an issue like do you think that's something that we just must like take as a byproduct of an environment like a parliament or is that something that we should be i suppose putting more emphasis on fixing and making the culture less toxic. I mean, in recent times, uh, the problem that I've seen with Parliament and also just politics in general Mm. is that people aren't debating policies. They're resorting to ad hominem attacks on individuals to try and uh, make their idea appear more valid and also to try and, you know, bring them to say something that, you know... Mm. They yeah. probably shouldn't. It's it's tiring and disappointing. Okay, it's interesting, tiring, and disappointing. Let me explain. For things like fact-check to um, exist as a section for journalistic sort of newspapers, like it's a thing that um, the ABC does, it's a thing that the conversation does, where they'll... So not always politicians' comments, but most frequently they'll look at a politician's comment like a figure or like something that they just throw out there and just utterly debunk it. And it's just sort of... This idea that they can be so blasé with their language and not get any sort of strong consequence, it's its crazy. And it's certainly not normal yeah. Australian behaviour as David Linehan would like to sort of spin it as. It's certainly not something... And we've seen this see. kind of, like, people being this... considered the, considering themselves a provocative figure like Milo Yipanolis, who, by the way, David Linehan invited to Parliament. Oh, great. <laughs> You can see birds of a feather flock together. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, playing devil's advocate a little bit, do you think 
Possibly. So we, we we have a few reasons. Maybe he's just being obstinate, and he that's just truly what he believes, and he just refuses to apologize because it's against his beliefs of free speech and like what he thinks the situation is. Then we've got that other idea of possibly he's doing it just for attention, and just sort of you know trying to milk the sort of like media coverage as much as he can. Do you think there's a possibility that he's just hoping things will blow over and he thinks maybe addressing it head on will give more fuel to the fire and he's just sort of wanting it to move uh, on? He's certainly, he's certainly, I mean, it was a story quite early in the week and he's like certainly, certainly cooled down. So I think he's, you know, trying to kind of leave the fire alone now. But mm. I mean, I think if he was legitimately trying to, you know, move on from the controversy, he wouldn't be you know, coming out and saying all this stuff that we uh, can't repeat on the radio show yeah. about various politicians and media people. Yeah. I, su- I suppose to wrap this up, what I really want to say is that I wish instances like this aren't things we need to continue covering, like, every single week in the future. Like, it shouldn't be something that parliamentarians have to deal with, particularly those that come from, you know more marginalised groups or vulnerable groups are the ones that suffer the brunt of these attacks. And there's certainly, like, a lot, an outflood of support, but, like, it would be great to see that sort of mobilised beyond these instances and that the outrage turn into some sort of systematic change as much as is possible within the constraints of, like, the environment that politics and policy takes place. But... As always, we want to hear what you think on this situation. So be sure to send us a tweet to at SinRepresent or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. So we are now going to be going into a little bit of the incident of an ABC journal being banned from covering um, the Pacific Island Forum being held in Nauru. So we know that Australia and um, the Nauru have quite a lot of history. Specifically, um, I'll just quickly read out the statement being that was posted online that explained the reason as to why this um, ABC photographer was banned. So Nauru said, It should be noted that no representative from the Australian Broadcasting Corporation will be granted uh, a visa to enter Nauru under any circumstances due to this organisation's blatant interference in Nauru's domestic politics prior to the 2016 elections, harassment of and lack of respect towards our president in Australia, our president in Australia, false and defamatory allegations against members of our government, and continued bias and false reporting about our country. So, to put that into context, the ABC, uh, I apologise, I said photographer, but I meant camera operator, was meant to be part of the three people sent from Australia, along with two AAP journalists, and um, these three were chosen as part of the um, pool of journalists, as part of the press gallery pool I believe um, but basically as sort of said in the statement the ABC journalist was not allowed to go which has um, been a pretty big issue due to several reasons first of all um, the actual sort of whole premise of the whole um Pacific Island Forum is really important. There's going to be approximately 
18 Pacific Island country representatives that are going to be in attendance. And a big issue that people are having is whether this is a blatant attack on press freedom. So Nauru is sort of saying that the ABC is an activist media organisation. That's why they can't be allowed and they have sort of the sovereignty to decide this. And that is something that our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull has not sort of taken a strong stance against. So he's expressed regret at the situation. But if you look into the technicalities of politician talk, you'll sort of see that regret is on the milder end of the spectrum of, you know, what you could be expressing. You could be expressing deep disappointment or something along those lines. But no, Turnbull was mildly regrettable about the fact that an ABC journalist is not able to attend and cover the Pacific Island forums held in September this year. So giving it to you, Oscar, what are your thoughts on this situation? I mean, I think it's really kind of... I mean, mean, whether it's related to... uh, There is a freedom of the press issue, but I think really it's kind of just been seen as an impulse decision by the uh, Nauru government for a country that isn't generally fr- friendly to uh, journalists, especially foreign journalists, you know. Each uh, journalist, in order to be able to go to the island, has to pay a $8,000 non-refundable fee. That's insane. And so you don't really... You don't really see, you know, them being that friendly to journalists. I think this is another thing of, you know them trying to get rid of a media organisation for delivering generally unfavourable coverage Mm. of them. That's right. And um, so the nitty-gritty of the explanation as to why the um, ABC is sort of barred from reporting on the uh, Pacific Island forums is basically um, in an article or several articles that the ABC sort of reported on was there were some leaked emails that the ABC got a hold of in 2015 that sort of alleged illicit payments to prominent figures in the Nauruian government by an Australian company um, that is involved in the phosphate trade. Um, basically, both the company and the president, has, de- uh, as in Baron Waka of Nauru, has denied those allegations but they're sort of still saying that that had a really uh, negative impact on the sort of public perception of the president and also influenced their elections that happened in 2016. But, of course, this issue also spans to Australia and Nara's relationship, particularly in the case of... um, asylum seekers being kept in offshore detention centres on Nauru and that's sort of, I suppose, part of the puzzle as to Nauru's sort of scepticism in letting journalists come in and actually report. So not specifically in this case, but um, in terms of the where asylum seekers are kept for detention, no journalists are allowed to go report there and... um, yeah, so keeping that in mind, Oscar, what are your thoughts on the sort of asylum seeker situation in relationship between Australia and Nauru and possibly influencing this decision? I mean, I don't think I don't think it really changes the 
I don't think it really changes the way the Nauru government is acting, but it certainly has shaped the way that Australia, that the Australian government has reacted, because Australia and Nauru are kind of tied together, because Nauru was tied to Australia by, we give a third of our, I think our foreign aid makes up a third of their GDP. Mm. Um, maybe, maybe it's the other way around, but, um, <laughs> but, but, um, the, but I think, and also, and Australia is kind of tied to, tied to Nauru through its uh, immigration policy and the offshore detention centres. Yeah, and we were mentioning earlier off-air about how, you know, um, the idea of foreign aid isn't something that is a voting issue for Australians, but it is concerning that this is sort of happening um, in the background, and I... I don't know, like, it's interesting to to keep an eye on whether if this will actually influence the coverage of asylum seeker issues in the coming weeks. There was a recent case of a um, girl who w- the Australian government sort of allowed to come, onto Austra- come into Australia with her mother due to some acute um, mental health issues she was dealing with. Um, and that was like the seventh girl, sorry, the seventh child that this sort of um, grant has been given to. And people sort of on Twitter were speculating whether more stories like this are going to happen because of um, because of this sort of um, refusal of ABC the, of the ABC journalists, or if it's going to be um, less cases like this happening. Probably the former is what I'm personally more convinced of that potentially the instead of the um issue of the asylum seeker detention seekers sort of drifting in and out of um the media that it will have a more sort of moment in the spotlight due to this issue that is certainly one positive to come out of it if anything if that does actually happen but yeah um of course when this happened there was an outpouring of support. So we said Malcolm Turnbull didn't really give a strong condemnation, but, um, for example, Bill Shorten really um, stood up for the whole sort of issue going on. And funnily enough, the Vanuatu Daily Post said it wouldn't cover the event unless everyone was allowed in. Um, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade called Nara's decision regrettable, which is a more significant word. Um, Amnesty International said it was a an attempt to suppress coverage of the treatment of asylum seekers. So that sort of su- a statement that um, Am- Amnesty International was willing to make. And um, New Zealand Press Gallery Chair Stacey Kirk also made a statement on the issue saying that... Um, Basically, it is a violation of free speech, freedom of expression, which is necessary as part of a healthy democracy. So certainly we can say that there has been a bit of an outcry within the public and sort of around in other countries as well. So do you think there's any chance at all that this circ- cir- the circumstances will change or do you think it's pretty much like a set deal that the ABC is just going to be barred? I doubt the government's going to change its decision because it doesn't really change its standing internationally. Like, I think we're seeing this, you know, kind of small outrage, but I think it's going to fizzle down, and I think ultimately when it comes to the actual conference itself, I don't think there's going to be a lot of coverage about how the ABC wasn't allowed to go. Mm, exactly. Well, I suppose, yeah, it depends. I, 
It is hard. It is hard to predict. I suspect one or two articles will come back around in September, but if nothing else sort of progresses, it's unlikely, as you said, Oscar, to develop into another bigger story or outrage around that time. We now turn to uh, Witness K in the uh, ASIO situation. So, Witness K and his lawyer, who I don't remember the name of, but he was the ACT f- former Attorney General. Mm. He was a former. Att- uh, uh, they've been charged with revealing s- secrets of uh, ASIS, which is the Australian Secret Intelligence Service. Uh, so this comes after Witness Key is the uh, person who brought to lo- to public light the pers- the um, the uh, fact that uh, the Australia was spying was spying on East Timor's government, which mm-hmm. is of course it's it's kind of seen as like a downturn in Australia's diplomatic relationship. And so the and also revealed that the Australian government was spying on them to try and uh, win over a contract. So uh, after that, the um, the East Timor government uh, filed a filed a suit against Australia in the International Court of Justice, uh, which and after a harsh uh, interim ruling and Australia agreeing to. Uh, and Australia agreeing to return the papers, the uh, case was discontinued. But uh, it has this really is quite a you know big uh, decision because uh, it, it was also a well timed decision because this is after Australia had had gotten the uh, con- the uh, contract to uh, operate well to be able to do the things. So this is well timed to you know. So, so to put it into context, the contract they were talking about is that was that the like forty billion oil and gas treaty that yeah. we're talking about? Yeah. Right, and then I suppose Australia was just bugging in to try have an yeah. advantage on the negotiation table yeah. by knowing what's going on. That is insidious. That is that is evil stuff, and I'm glad it was you know brought to light. And it's problematic that I suppose like Witness K is sort of facing so much sort of trouble for bringing things like bring that to light and I feel like whistleblowers in general tend to cop a lot more blame than yeah. being appreciated uh, for what so doing. yeah uh, there's kind of been like the uh, attorney general has kind of tried to basically remove himself as like one of the people who played a part in the decision so uh, according to the attorney general he he just he just approved it uh, upon the advice. There was it wasn't a oh you need to consider this and this. Uh, but witness well witness case lawyer is claiming that they got permission from the uh, Australian Inspector General for Intelligence Services to reveal the information. Hmm, interesting. And I suppose I don't know. I'm interested. I don't know if this is something that you read up much into Oscar, but like, how does Australia's treatment of someone like Witness K, like a whistleblower in this instance, compared to like America or other countries, and how they sort of deal with whistleblowers that supposedly. I mean, I mean, uh, Australia and uh, America and other Western countries don't really take too kindly to whistleblowers revealing information. Mm. Um, but compared to America, Australia has relatively poor oversight of intelligence services, in that uh, Parliament doesn't really. Uh, Parliament doesn't really, like, investigate and, you know, the, the intelligence says that rather just tries to oversee its finance and administration. It doesn't try and, you know, investigate and explore the ethical concerns of their operations. Mm. 
Because mm. I'm reading here in the notes that we made that um, sort of the government's claims were sort of that Witness K's actions endangered ACES officers and their families. How d- did we already go through how that could be the case? Because just from like a no, 40 billion. I'm not too sure. Yeah, it's it seems like a far-fetched claim unless we just haven't done our research uh, more thoroughly enough but it in terms of like a treaty it just seems like from the information we've got in front of us like a way possibly to spin this into a more grave action than it actually is all right um and that is all we have time for today and a bit of an abrupt ending, but, you know, yeah. we just had so much to go through this day, today. But don't worry, we'll be back next week, 3 to 4 p.m. on Sin Nation and streaming online on sin.org.au. Be sure to stay tuned for its literature. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes by listening to our podcasts on iTunes and Omni. And, of course, you can send them feedback to us through Twitter at SinRepresent or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash SinRepresent. This show is produced by ZZ Avril and Meg. Maggie Lou, I'm Maggie. And I'm Oscar. And remember to stay, stay political. political.